I remember I lost my faith in a belief in a creator or a God when I was inundated in the high school sciences, learning inundated with Darwinian evolution. And I thought the Christians who believe in a God or in the Genesis account must be foolish or completely rejecting all the clear evidence that's around them. Many of those who fall into atheism and walk away from the church often can be traced back to their high school sciences where they were just inundated with Darwin's theory. Darwin or design? Where does the evidence point? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Christian scholar, speaker, and apologist, Dr. Pat Zukerin. Today, you'll hear Pat before a live audience evaluating the Darwinian evolutionary theory of life and the view that life is the result of intelligent design. And by the way, there is much material on this topic you can access at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Not only can you download today's program, but past programs dealing with everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. You'll find Dr. Zukerin's articles, interviews with leading scholars, his latest book, The Apologetics of Jesus, and more resources that will educate and inspire you in your quest for truth. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now let's go to part one of Pat Zukerin's teaching on Darwin or design. Psalm 19 states, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands day after day. They pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. And the purpose of our study of the sciences as Christians is to discover and explore the wonderful design and the mind of the Creator. Few realize that the foundation of the modern sciences were established by men who believed in a creator who created the universe and set it in order. Their goal was to discover the design of the designer. Here are just a few of the great minds of modern times who laid the foundations for many of the modern sciences. Johannes Kepler, considered one of the greatest scientists of modern times. He's the father of celestial mechanics and physical astronomy. Blaise Pascal, the father of hydrostatistics. Robert Boyle, the father of modern chemistry and gas dynamics. Sir Isaac Newton, probably one of the top five scientists of all time, the father of calculus. Charles Babbage, the father of computer science. And the list just goes on and on. Louis Pasteur, the father of bacteriology. Lord Kelvin the father of energetics and thermodynamics, and the list just continues to go on. The foundation of the modern sciences were founded by men who had a strong belief in a creator. Johannes Kepler writes this, May God make it come to pass that my delightful speculation in the Mysterium Cosmographicum have everywhere among reasonable men fully the effect which I strove to obtain in the publication, namely that the belief in the creator of the world be fortified through his external support. Isaac Newton, probably one of the greatest minds of all time, says this, It is not to be conceived that mere mechanical causes could give birth to so many regular motions, since the comets range over all parts of the heavens in very eccentric orbits. This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Now, however, although the sciences were dominated by men and women who believed in a creator, it was quickly hijacked by two non-scientists named Darwin 
and Huxley. In fact, today, Darwin remains one of the most influential theories of our time, not just in the sciences, but this theory permeates in many areas of study. Darwin's theory is taught as the only viable explanation for the origin and diversity of life. And those of you going into the sciences or who are in the sciences often find an underlying hostility to anyone who believes in a God or a creator or intelligent design. For this reason, it's important to understand this theory and how it impacts our faith and how we as Christians should respond intelligently to the challenge which Darwinism poses. Now, many Christians mistakenly believe they can believe in all aspects of Darwin's theory and hold consistently to their faith in God's Word, the Bible. Hey, however, this is a false premise. Let me explain why. Now, Darwin's theory is a comprehensive philosophy stating that all life can be explained by natural causes acting randomly. It's an explanation, a theory that attempts to explain the origin and the diversity of life without God. If God did not create the world, then the entire body of Christian belief then collapses. Dr. William Provine, a spokesman for Darwinism, a professor at Cornell University, states this, that Darwinism ultimately means no life after death, no absolute foundation for right and wrong, no ultimate meaningful life, no free will. That's the implications of Darwinism. It's a comprehensive theory stating that all life can be explained by natural causes and therefore there is no need for God. In fact, those who hold strictly to Darwinism are very antagonistic to the idea that a God or a Creator exists. Richard Dawkins, Oxford University professor and biologist and probably the chief spokesman for Darwinism, featured in the movie Expelled, which came out recently, and he uh, wrote one of the best-selling books called The God Delusion. And he states this, The more you understand the significance of evolution, the more you are pushed away from an agnostic position towards atheism. Buying into Darwinian evolution, therefore, can have a very corrosive effect on your faith in Christ. As you see, Darwin's theory contradicts what the Bible teaches. It directly contradicts the Genesis account. Genesis states that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Darwinism teaches that the universe began as a cosmic accident, and life on this planet is just a result of random chance. In other words, there is no ultimate purpose for your existence. There's no reason why you are placed here in the universe. There's really no ultimate meaning for your life. You are merely an accident. And eventually you're going to die and cease to exist. Eventually the universe is going to expand and come to a state of what's called final entropy and the universe is going to die. So what difference did it ever make that we were ever here? I mean, the, our ultimate end is extinction. So what difference did it ever make that we were here? You're going to have to conclude there's no ultimate meaning for our existence. Genesis teaches that God created the universe. He created 
each one of us for a purpose and he created this universe for us to enjoy his creation and to explore his design. Our life has meaning if Genesis is true. Our lives have no ultimate meaning if Darwinism is true. Genesis teaches that after the death of the physical body, we exist in an eternal state. Darwinism teaches the only thing we have to look forward to, the only certainty that we have is our death, our extinction, the extinction of those we love and the extinction of mankind and eventually the universe. Now, one important thing to understand is that Darwin's theory remains a theory. Although in our high schools and universities it is taught as a fact, it remains a theory. And unfortunately, it's taught as the only viable explanation for the origin and diversity of life. However, Darwin's theory has failed to present a conclusive case for the origin and diversity of life. It remains a theory with several significant flaws, which makes it a theory in crisis. Now, in order to understand the flaws of Darwin's theory, we must first understand some key terms. First, evolution, microevolution, and macroevolution. These are three key terms you got to understand if you're going to understand Darwin's theory and the flaws and the significant flaws that are in his theory. First, evolution. Now, the problem here is that a vague definition is given, and many of these definitions are used interchangeably when we're talking about evolution, which confuses the issue. Often you'll hear the definition that evolution means change over time. That's a very imprecise, vague definition. If evolution means change over time, we're all evolutionists. There's nothing we disagree on. Of course things change over time. However, that's often the definition that you hear. Darwinian evolution, this is the definition. According to the National Association of Biology Teachers, the diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution. An unsupervised, impersonal, unpredictable, and natural process of temporal descent with genetic modification that is affected by natural selection, chance, historical contingencies, and changing environments. Okay, in other words, evolution teaches that the origin and diversity of life is the result of random chance. It is an undirected, okay, impersonal process. There is no supernatural creator or intelligence behind the universe or behind creation or behind our existence. This is all a product of natural, uh, it's, a, it's a natural process, a product of random chance. Evolution is the belief that undirected mechanistic processes can account for all the diverse and complex living organisms that exist. There is no long-range plan or purpose in the history of life. That is what we mean when we're talking about Darwinian evolution. It's not simply change over time. Darwinian evolution is teaching that the origin and diversity of life is the result of natural processes. It's a completely undirected, impersonal process that leaves out the possibility of an intelligent creator behind the universe, behind life, and behind our existence. George Gaylord Simpson, the architect of neo-Darwinism, states, Man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. 
Jacques Monod states, man must understand that he is a mere accident. So that's one of the key things you must understand. When we're talking about evolution, we're not talking about simply change over time. That's what we're talking about, and the implications are quite significant. Second, you've got to understand that there's two kinds of evolution. Microevolution and macroevolution. Now, the trouble is, these two are used interchangeably, and that's where a lot of the confusion takes place. Microevolution refers to minor variations that occur within a species over time. So, for example, the different types of dogs that are produced is a form of microevolution, a change within a species. The variety of birds that you have is a form of microevolution, change within a species. Macroevolution refers to the emergence of major innovation such as the development of new structures like wings, new organs like lungs and body plans. It includes changes above the species level and creating a new phyla or class. In macroevolution, in the process of macroevolution, you must show that through the natural process you can create a new species. You can create significantly new body parts and that a rat okay, can evolve into a bat, can develop wings and develop into a bat. That a fish can move to an amphibian, eventually to a land-roving reptile or lizard, and eventually into a mammal. You've got to be able to show that you can develop new significant structures and eventually go from one species to another. Now, we all agree microevolution takes place. We all agree on that. What Darwinian evolution has to show is that through the natural process, you can produce macroevolutionary changes. And the confusion is this. Microevolutionary examples are used to demonstrate that macroevolutionary changes can occur. You get what I'm saying? They'll say macroevolutionary uh, processes take place. Let me give you an example. The breeding of dogs. You see the many dogs that take place uh, that can result from breeding. Therefore, Darwinian evolution must be true. Okay? Now you see what has happened? I've given you an example of microevolutionary change. There are many breeds of dogs, many different kinds of dogs, but they're still what? Dogs. I've used a microevolutionary example to demonstrate macroevolutionary process to be true. Hey, that's what you often see. So you got to get those three definitions very clear because they're used interchangeably all the time and that's where the confusion takes place. Microevolution is within a species. We all agree that that occurs. But what Darwinian evolution has to show is that through the natural process, macroevolutionary changes, significant changes that go that create a new species can occur through the natural process. And Darwinian evolutionary theory and the evidence has failed to show that through the natural process ma macroevolutionary changes can occur. Now that we've got some definitions down, let me go over some basic flaws in Darwin's theory. Now, time does not allow me to extensively cover the flaws in Darwin's theory. I brought some resources with me, some of the most significant 
writing that has occurred in our time exposing the basic flaws of Darwinian evolution. And these are significant flaws, all right, that really expose the weakness of this theory. And these are significant because if they are not resolved, this theory does not work. Now, I'm only going to cover two basic flaws of the theory. Number one, this is a very significant one. Darwinian evolution is missing the mechanism for change. What is the natural process that causes macroevolutionary change? Darwinian evolution teaches that it's natural selection and mutation. Okay, that's what we learn in high school and throughout college. However, natural selection and mutations do not cause macroevolutionary change. They do not. They have failed to show that they produce any kind of macroevolutionary change. Here's the uh, example that we see in our high school and college textbooks all the time. Okay? Natural selection selects the best and the strongest of a species and allows it to survive. It does not change it. It preserves the strongest of a species. Okay, here's an example, as you always see, the peppered moth. And many of you know this example. Peppered moth, you see up there the white moth is camouflaged very well against the white bark of a tree. But the darker moth is not. Therefore, the darker moth is the one that was getting picked off by the birds because it could not camouflage itself in the tree. Now, according to this story, as the Industrial Revolution hit Europe, the soot got on the trees and the trees became darker. Therefore, the dark moth was able to camouflage itself and the white moth now was exposed and the birds picked off the white moth. Okay? There is natural selection producing evolutionary change. Correct? No. Whether it's the white moth that survives or the dark moth, you still, it's still a moth. You haven't changed the species. You haven't created any significant new parts. Whether it's the white moth or the dark moth that survives, it's still a moth. And you haven't created anything new. No significant new body parts have been created. Natural selection is a mechanism that preserves a species. It does not change it. But this example, though flawed, is still used in high school and college textbooks all over the world. Number two, mutations. Mutations does not cause macroevolutionary change. Scientists understand that there is a limit which you can mess with the gene pool. There's a natural limit for biological change. For example, dog breeding. You can only breed dogs so far. Now, if dogs go back into the wild, the succeeding generations that are produced go back to its original wild form, the form of the wolf. Mutations are the vast majority of the time harmful. You're going to be hard-pressed to name a few, a few, a significant number of mutations that are beneficial. The vast, vast majority are harmful. Okay? Now, here's the famous Drosophila fruit fly experiment that's still used as an example in textbooks all over the world. As you know, this story, fruit flies were blasted with radiation. And as a result, the next generation of fruit fly came out some very interesting looking fruit flies. You had some with crumpled wings, some with very dark bodies, some with 
uh, very short wings that were unable to fly, some with dark eyes, some that were blind. And as a result of these many flies, different kinds of flies as a result of mutations, we have Darwinian evolutionary change. Correct? No. Incorrect. It's still a fly. It's still a fruit fly. You haven't changed anything. You haven't created a significantly new body part. You haven't created a new species. It's still a fruit fly. Pierre Paul Grasset writes this. What is the use of their unceasing mutations? A swing to the right, a swing to the left, but no final evolutionary effect. Neonatologist and pediatrician, one of the most recognized in the world. He's won many, many awards. Dr. Reginald Sang from the University of Cincinnati. I spoke with him at a conference in Ohio. And he writes this, I've been a neonatologist pediatrician for over 30 years. I've seen hundreds of mutation-affected infants and read about thousands more in medical literature. And I've never seen a really, a real live good mutation. In fact, the medical literature is full of reports showing how even a small one amino acid mistake, mutation in the phenomenally complex DNA can cause a profound problem. Now, those of you who are parents know if the doctor comes up to you after the delivery of a baby and says, your child has a mutation, is that good news or bad news? It's always bad news. It's always bad news. Yet in the evolutionary cycle, we are taught, okay, we are taught that thousands of mutations have occurred in a species very quickly, and they were all very beneficial. Hey, that's opposite of what we have learned in the sciences and in our experience. So remember, we have to show that the natural processes can produce major changes, macroevolutionary changes, not microevolutionary changes. And unfortunately, Darwin's theory fails to produce a mechanism that can produce those kinds of changes. Then we have the fossil record. Now, what's missing in the fossil record is what we call transitional forms. For example, the rat eventually evolved into the bat. What we're missing is hundreds of transitional forms that show rats with extensions that eventually grow out into wings. We should have hundreds of those transitional forms. We don't. When you look in the fossil record, you have all the species in their full form. You have a full rat and a full bat. And the transitional forms here are missing. But then again, you have to think, if natural selection is your process of change, let's just take an example. A rat with wings about half the length it needs to be, what benefit does it give that rat? Think about it. How does it make it more able to survive? It's the wings at half length are too short for the rat to fly, yet they're too long for it to be mobile on the ground. And how does natural selection allow that kind of rat to survive in the wild? How is that beneficial? Now, there are some who try to propose some kind of transitional form, but we're failing to find them in the fossil record. Here's one of the most famous, Archaeopteryx. Considered the transitional form between the lizard and the bird. Many consider it a half bird, half lizard. And it's a very interesting bird, but most paleontologists agree this is a bird. All right, But let's just say it is one of the transitional forms. Let's say it's the halfway point. Let's just give them that. Even if it is, you're still missing a whole bunch of transitional forms that go from here all the way to here, and then from here all the way to a full bird. You're still missing those transitional forms. And the point is this. 
We should have thousands of transitional forms. There should be thousands of them in the fossil record. The problem is we don't have it. When you look at the fossil record, you find that the species are there in their full form and they have not changed. And that's much closer to the Genesis account. In fact, Darwin thought what you would have is a tree of life, that you could be able to trace these transitional forms and they would form this tree pattern leading back to the one cell form of life. However, instead, what you have is something that puzzles evolutionists. You have what's called the Cambrian explosion. And for nearly four and a half billion years, there's very little life upon the earth. Suddenly, about five to six hundred million years ago, boom, the earth explodes with life. All the phyla, all the species suddenly appear. Boom, the species suddenly appear. Well, we're out of time, so let's pick it up there next time on Evidence and Answers. Just a reminder that you can download today's program at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. Not only will you educate yourself, but by purchasing our resources, you'll keep Evidence and Answers on the air and expanding around the world as we present and defend the claims of Jesus Christ and His life-changing power. And parents and grandparents, you'll want to equip your children with the very interesting resources at evidenceandanswers.org, especially your young people who are in colleges and universities or who are planning to go. Send them strong and equipped with good information so that they may withstand the aggressive attack on their worldview. Thank you so much for your prayers and support for this vital ministry. That's evidenceandanswers.org. For Dr. Pat Zuckerman, I'm Kevin Harris. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers.